0: Hi, folks. Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned On every single show, you'll be an official sponsor of The Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's com slash join. basic hip Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by allaboutjazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you can also subscribe to the show using iTunes or an RSS reader, and the links for both of those things are at thejazzsession.com. And while you're there, hint hint, why not become a member? It's a great way to keep interviews uh, just like the one you're going to hear today coming to you for years to come. The show's been going for more than four years now, and uh, I really need your support to uh, help keep this thing moving along. So please become a member. There are several different levels, both monthly and yearly, and uh, most of them are quite affordable. So please do it. Thanks. My guest today is Dr. Anthony Brown. He leads the Asian American Orchestra, and they've got a really cool new record taking a look at John Coltrane's India and Africa and involving uh, instruments from those two places. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. It begins with Living Space. My guest is Dr. Anthony Brown. He is the director of the Asian American Orchestra, and he plays in it as well. Uh, they've got a really fantastic new album out called "India and Africa," a tribute to John Coltrane. And uh, it's my pleasure to have Anthony on the show. Thanks for being here. Hey,
1: Jason, thank you for inviting me.
0: This this album is is really great, and uh, it I think it definitely is is a, was a wonderful choice. Uh, I assume it was your choice to record it uh, live. Because I think the uh, the real simpatico that the band has with uh, the audience just just takes it to a new height, and I thought maybe before we delve into the uh, the album too closely, you could just tell folks a little bit about the Asian American orchestra uh, to kind of place this record in context of of what the orchestra's mission has been,
1: sure uh the orchestra is actually uh the fl- i would consider it the flagship uh performing ensemble of the Asian American jazz movement which dates back to the uh since we're based here in the San Francisco Bay area dates back to the days of the student activism in the late 60s early 70s uh asian uh musicians asian american musicians uh, were forming coalitions with other artists uh, across the uh the board uh, both in on campuses and in community centers and um there was an there was a, I would say a cross-pollination of, of cultural ideas, sensibilities, and, um, uh, influences. And, um, Asian musicians, Asian American musicians, uh, in collaborating with African American musicians, uh, were listening to the music of, uh, Charles Mingus, uh, Max Roach, uh, Archie Shep, any, any music that was, uh, that had a, a message. Any music that had a message and a message of freedom and empowerment, and uh, that uh, was pretty much the uh, the origins of the Asian American jazz movement. People, probably un- un- unfamiliar names, but uh, Russell Baba was uh, one of the early um, uh, pioneers. Uh, another gentleman named uh, Gerald Oshida, who uh, actually was a multi instrumentalist and played with people as far ranging as um, Roscoe Mitchell uh, in-, in a group called. Oh, I can't remember the other group, but it was a trio. And then he also worked with people uh, like Janis Joplin. So uh, the movement has a pretty uh, long history, and it's quite wide-ranging uh, wide as far as its influences. But I would say by the mid-'70s, uh, musicians like um, Mark Izu, bass player, and in- uh, Asian musical instrumentalists, were studying Asian music and uh, traditional music with, uh, with people from from mainland Asia, and uh, we're starting to incorporate those ideas, instruments, sensibilities, and melodies, and um, conceptual approaches to music making into jazz. And so by the late uh, 70s, early 80s, the very first Asian American Jazz Festival was launched, and that's kind of the roots of the Asian American Jazz uh, Orchestra, which was founded 15, 14 years ago uh, out of uh, money that was set aside for the reparations of Japanese American intern- internees uh, during World War II, uh, they were granted reparations in 1988, and part of that reparations uh, funding was set aside to create a national education program about the uh, Japanese-American internment experience during World War II. And part of that funding was to um, have a cultural uh, facet of that educational um, campaign, and the orchestra was formed out of that, out of a coalition of artists and uh, arts groups, community centers, et cetera. And, uh, I was the project director and Francis Wong, uh, was the, uh, musical director. And then after that project ran out of money, was federally funded, I kept the orchestra going and our next pro- our first project was called Big Bands Behind Bob Wire, which was a recording of music, uh, regional music that was either influenced or informed by the internment experience. And uh, the three featured composers on that were Mark Izu, aforementioned Mark Izu, John Jang, and myself. And um, I would say that from that early period of the first Asian American Jazz Festival, which was launched in 1981, Mark Izu and I played at that festival, and, and Russell Baba, uh, Michael White was in Russell Baba's group, as well as Eddie Moore, maybe those names are familiar, violinist Michael White. So, the Asian American jazz movement has been, I would say, multicultural or intercultural from the very beginning. And, uh, it continues to this day. Somebody like Vijay Iyer, who's gained, uh, national, international prominence, actually got his, got his start here in the Bay Area. Uh, so, you know, we're pretty much across the map. I've mentioned some of the names, Francis Wong. The Asian American Jazz Festival has now gone on to uh, be celebrating its, ooh, probably 15th or, or close to 20th anniversary in Chicago. Uh, it's been, uh, there's also been seeds uh, sown in uh, Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles. Um, and there's actually a festival in Poland, <laughs> an Asian American Jazz Festival in Poland. Of course nowadays. there is. So, yes, as unbelievable as that sounds, that's, that's uh, entirely the case. So uh, it's a musical uh, style or subgenre of jazz that I equate, or not equate, but I say is quite similar to, say, Latin American or Latin yeah, Latin jazz, which, you know, uh, when we look at how that started, it was basically people from uh, Cuba, in this case, Chano Pozo and um, uh, Mario Balsa who were not only integrating jazz with their home music, but they were bringing instrumentals, approaches to music-making and composition, and uh, folk, uh, folkloric or folklore. Music. So, uh, that's very, uh, very much a parallel of what happened with the Asian American jazz movement. Uh, artists were learning how to perform on traditional instruments, bringing those into the context of jazz, bringing in repertoire from Asia, bringing in, uh, sensibilities, approaches to improvisation. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is now over 30 years in, in, um, in its existence. And it will continue, I believe, uh, with, um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Vijay Iyer, uh, Rudras uh, I'm, but Ru- Rudras, uh, I remember seeing him at the, uh, the first few Chicago Asian American Jazz Festivals in the mid-90s, uh, and he was on the scene. So, uh, there have been some spinoffs, and, you know, it's still generating an, uh, you know, international interest at this point.
0: I understand it, there uh, there's kind of a, a book or a chapter of a book that was the uh, inspiration for tackling this particular material, the India and Africa material for this new record. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's correct. There was a book uh, recently published uh, late last year uh, on Oxford University Press entitled Don um, Coltrane and Black America's Quest for Freedom, Spirituality and the Music. And it was a collection of, of essays from uh, a variety of, um, of contributors, uh, musicians, scholars, uh, Eric Jackson, uh, you know, long-standing uh, DJ at uh, uh, in Boston, WTBH. Uh, um, uh, you know, basically across the board. So my my two chapters: one was an interview with Ollie Wilson, preeminent scholar composer, and uh, he talks uh, a great deal about Train and his contribution to American music. And then my chapter focused on Coltrane's. Uh, extended works following A Love Supreme. Now, most of us in jazz recognize Coltrane's uh, mag, uh, A Love Supreme as his magnum opus, and indeed it is, And but he continued to write extended, multi-movement works after A Love Supreme, so I wanted to find out where was his development insofar as his spirituality and his, and his uh, musicianship and his influences in his later works. Uh, I'm sure you're a musician as well. So, you know, a composer writing extended work has to deal with a variety of themes, moods, tonal centers, and uh, in order to construct a cohesive, um, uh, a unified expression in one piece. Uh, obviously, multi-movements allows for, for a variety of expressions. So I was looking at what Coltrane did with that format in, his, um, in the years following A Love Supreme. I'm also looking at, I also investigated that period of when Coltrane started to incorporate more free jazz drumming, i.e. when uh, Elvin Jones started to incorporate passages or episodes of free jazz drumming. And uh, so it looks at, at that period from, ni- from 1965, actually through that year, up until the recording of uh, Meditations, when, uh, and shortly after that, Elvin left the group. So I was looking at that transitional period, but Coltrane wrote so many uh, major works at that time. Um, and to include Ascension, I actually uh, diagrammed Ascension, uh, both both editions, <laughs> to show what the structure was and how Train was working with structure.
0: One thing that he did not do was to incorporate traditional musical instruments from the cultures that he was inspired by, for example, in India and Africa, which is something that you have the opportunity to do uh, as you uh, take a different arranging approach to this music. Can you talk about some of the uh, the instrumentation that uh, that I think makes this just such a fascinating look at these pieces?
1: Well, sure. Um, well, Coltrane, uh, you know, the, the reason why we're able to do that, I, I think, uh, in, in this generation of musicians... Uh, is because living here on the west coast, we have an influx of, of musicians who I would say are bilingual if we look at music as a language. They're schooled in either contemporary or traditional, uh, uh, Asian musics and also have training in western concert music traditions so for us the lingua franca is uh you know a music western musical notation when i hand uh, a uh, a player from say india or from china they will look at it and sometimes they'll actually retranscribe it into their cipher notation now what was particularly uh challenging and very and uh, very uh Evocative of working with India and Africa Train recorded both of those works uh, Without using traditional instruments From either of those countries Now when India he did have guest musicians He had um, somebody playing uh, what Was allegedly playing um, Oh gosh uh, That the instrument escapes me uh, Oud. But uh, it doesn't sound much like Ud. But anyway, <laughs> regardless of that, he has no Indian instruments in there. And uh, being here in the Bay Area, we have the Ali Akbar Khan School right here. And we have, you know, I mean, Zakir Hussein is a resident. We've, we've recorded together. We've performed together. We've together. So we have, uh, you know, really a wealth of, of, of folks who schooled in both Asian traditional music and uh, Western concert music or Western jazz. And that allows us uh, to have this kind of... Uh, multilingual uh, expression, and so it's not as far-fetched or challenging now to have people participate in a jazz uh, uh, context uh, and still be uh, fluent in, the, in a traditional uh, context or a traditional style of music. So, for India, I was lucky to have uh, asked actually asked Zakir, who could uh, who he would recommend for the project, and he recommended Dana Pandey, who was uh, who one of his uh, star pupils and uh, major collaborators. So we were really fortunate to have her. And then through her, I was able to um, have Steve Oda, the Siro player, who actually started his career. He's originally from Toronto, and he came to New York in the early 60s to pursue a career as a jazz guitarist. And he saw Coltrane um, performing India Live, probably at the Village Vanguard, and it completely turned him around, and he, and he dedicated his life to Indian music. So when he found out about our project, uh, going for, you know from jazz to, and including Indian instruments and musicians, he called me up and asked to be included. And I, how could I refuse? I mean, here's a guy with a jazz sensibility uh, who was influenced by Coltrane to take up Indian music, and now playing uh, Coltrane's music in a completely different context. Um, for Africa, I was very fortunate. Oh, and also Steve's wife Pushpa played. Uh, Plays tambura, so we were able to get her involved as well. So we were able to, I think, uh, pretty much bring in what was a, tr- a pretty traditional uh, ensemble within the orchestra to perform India. For Africa, I was really very, very grateful and very fortunate to have Kenneth Nash whom uh, most people may know because he was essentially the house drummer, house percussionist for Fantasy Records. So he played with everybody, McCoy, uh, Cannonball, everybody who recorded uh, either with Oren Keep News or on that label here in the Bay Area. So that was a a real coup uh, for the project. Uh, going back to your your uh, mentioning that we did this live, yeah, that was the only way we could capture the spirit. Um, this music is highly improvisatory. The Indian music is highly improvisatory. And I felt that that was the best way, as you already mentioned, to capture the true spirit of Trains music. Even, as you said, he was unable to incorporate, um, you know, instrumentalists from those traditions. He did later. Uh, he, you know, he was able to work with uh, uh, African percussionists, but he never actually did that on the piece Africa as well as in India. He actually never had uh, traditional Indian instrumentalists perform that work.
0: And I should uh, also just make clear: I, I doubt anyone would read this into it, but I don't mean that as a slight on those original versions of the <laughs> that he recorded either, which I think are are brilliant pieces of music, and obviously they have John Coltrane playing on them. Uh, I just mean it's, a, it's a, a different way to approach this music.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I don't think, uh, you know, in that time there were uh, instrumentalists who were, uh, what I say, bilingual, you know, able to, to, to vacillate between the two traditions and the two languages. Um, you know, I know that, uh, obviously we all know that Train was very much influenced by Ravi Shankar, but, they, you know, they never really had a chance to exchange, to, to uh, you know, uh, musically. You know it's the same thing when I look at uh, my earlier projects uh, particularly the Far East with uh, Duke Ellington um, you know I'm sure that Duke would have loved to be able to have musicians uh, you know when he was on that State Department tour in 1963 to be able to join his orchestra but there wasn't that facility that fluency in both languages on, on either part whether the jazz musicians playing with the traditional instrumentalists in the Middle East or the Far East, or vice versa, any of those uh, musicians playing with, with um, Duke Ellington's band. It, it, it just, oh, you know, the world wasn't as small. You know, we weren't a global community back then. And um, it, it would have it been very challenging for somebody to be able to fit in, I think, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, as, you know, as today, it's, it's, you know, it's what we do. <laughs> Particularly out here on the West Coast, it's what we do and what we've been doing for over 30 years.
0: Anthony, can you talk about uh, the experience of uh, this this concert performance for you uh, what what it was like to perform this music uh, and and to be there in in front of the crowd and surrounded by all these amazing musicians
1: well it was first of all it was, it was an exhilarating experience uh, we We uh, premiered this uh, this work uh, this project Indian africa on on coltrane 's birthday would have been his eighty fourth birthday in uh, two thousand and nine uh and then later that year uh then the next year uh last year uh we repried, we and we did it at San Francisco Yoshis and then we came back in the spring that would have been of course September 23rd uh we came back in April and we recorded this project in uh, uh Yoshis Oakland and uh by that time we had a chance to really uh dig into the piece and i felt that at that point people were comfortable enough that we should document it um uh, at that concert, uh, playing in Oakland, I'm based in Berkeley, so playing in Oakland was was thrilling. You know, we had a hometown crowd; uh, they were all behind it. Uh, many of them had come, uh, had seen us earlier when we uh, performed it uh, earlier in September, and so they came out. Uh, the piece continues to evolve, and uh, it was it was just a really magical moment for us to be able to perform it uh, um, uh, when we recaptured it on, on recording in, in April.
0: Um,
1: yeah, uh again, being here in the Bay Area, you know, you look out in the crowd and they look just like the band. It's completely uh intercultural and um, and it's it's just a wonderful feeling to be able to have the whole community come out and celebrate Coltrane's music. Um, it doesn't happen often enough.
0: Are there uh, any particular challenges you had to overcome in, and I don't mean just for this recording, but over the years, in integrating, for example, tempered and non-tempered instruments, or you know these instruments from different cultures where the, the scale patterns and so on and so forth or the tunings are not the same? Are there any particular arranging uh, uh, tricks or, or skills, for lack of a better word, that you have to use in order to allow those things to, to mesh together?
1: Well, yeah, there are always challenges, uh, both uh, tonal and rhythmic. Uh, the first thing I worked with, uh, particularly working with uh, my earlier collaborators, uh, tr- uh, traditional Chinese instrumentalists, was trying to teach them cross-rhythm, two against three, three against four. I figured that they didn't get the rhythmic sensibility right. It didn't matter if they played the notes correctly. Um, but now, so that's that's what I focused on initially. Now, as far as tunings and tonal centers and pitch choices, those are also sometimes problematic as well. And working with instrumentalists from China and Japan, it's uh, you know the tunings are a little bit, um, uh, shall we say, a little more fluid. Um, but because all the instrumentalists that I'm working with have training in Western uh, in Western concert music, uh, we're able to use that as a lingua franca. So they know that, you know, A is tuned to 440, uh, you know, in, in the States, where, you know, even in Europe, it's, it's tuned differently. Um, so, you know, we have to work with that, uh, the actual uh, temperament. And we also have to work with um, pitch selections that are, uh, shall we say, idiosyncratic to particular instruments. Now, in uh, mainland uh, Asia, you know, it's best to work in the keys of D and G. Most of the instruments are pitched in that, of course. Most of the tunings are pentatonic. But we work with instrumentalists who work in, chrom- you know, again, from, because they have the Western training, are able to work with, with chromaticism and understand that. And, and that's, and, you know, truly, uh, Jason, that's the key, that, these, you know, we are all pretty much bilingual, if not multilingual, and that's what allows us to do this. Um, you know, I look at some early uh, experiments, like with John Handy, working with Ali Akbar Khan, you know, playing things that are blues-tinged or things, but they're basically speaking two different languages uh, but are able to connect on, on feeling and emotion and perhaps a, a, a joint tonal center. But beyond that, there's not uh, what I would consider um, a really meaningful dialogue insofar so far as the different uh, musical languages, and I'm not saying that uh, to say that we're unique in that regard. I think that that was something that you know was pioneered already with Dizzy and Mario Balsa and Chano Pozo. So again, it's it's that ability to to go back and forth. It took Dizzy a while to get fluent in an Afro and Afro-Cuban uh, sensibilities, but he did it, and and other musicians have done it as well. But it takes time, and uh, I think that that's one of the advantages we have here in the in the uh, uh, the West Coast, particularly in the Bay Area, is that we have this constant influx of folks coming from the mainland, Asia, and we have this constant exchange of ideas. And uh, you know, the more the world collapses and becomes a global community, the more we're finding that people are uh, not only conversant in Western concert music, but have some jazz chops as well and understanding of jazz. And for example, somebody uh, um, Hong Wong, who was featured on our Monk's Moods album playing, you know, Chinese violin and Chinese mouth organ and a variety of other instruments, he actually plays uh, jazz saxophone as well. So it was very easy for him to to, uh, come into our context.
0: I was interested in whether people came into this project with a knowledge of uh, Coltrane's India and Africa, whether that was a, a prerequisite or uh, whether you think there were people who were kind of experiencing this music over the course of, of learning it with the band.
1: Yeah, well, I think all my projects, uh, the Ellington, the Monk, uh, the Train, and even uh, one that uh, kind of missed the radar was uh, a Gershwin project called, uh, we did it under a CD entitled Rhapsodies is that um, we always had somebody who was not as familiar uh, with the work. Um, in this case, I would say Dana Ponday, who, uh, even though she worked real closely with Zakir, uh, probably was the least uh, familiar with, with Coltrane of course, Kenneth Nash, no problem, and Steve Oda, of course, having heard train live back in the early 60s when he was young, uh, was familiar with it. But it's still, again, you know, even familiarity with the language doesn't mean that you're fluent and can speak, you know, idiomatically. So it was a learning process. We all worked together. Um, This process of the train was very similar to the way I approached the Ellington in that we uh, transcribed the recording. And the band, on the first re- first couple rehearsals, replicated it as closely as we could to train. And then we started to mix in our, uh, our other influences. So we always wanted to pay respect and pay homage and to, uh, you know, to understand and to become as fluent in that language that we were then going to uh, adapt and, and transform.
0: I know uh, this record has obviously only uh, just come out fairly recently, but have you uh, have you looked ahead in the future at all at, at who you might tackle next? Oh, good question, Jason.
1: <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I, I haven't really set my sights on any one particular. Uh, composer. Uh, this, uh, 2011 is the 30th anniversary of the first Asian American Jazz Festival. So I'm actually writing new music, uh, to commemorate that, uh, first time jointly with Mark Izu. He and I have been collaborating for over 30 years, but we never, wor- uh, wrote, co-wrote a piece. So we're gonna do that for the first time. Um, so it'll be a kind of a retrospective year for me. Perhaps in 2012 I might start looking at a project, uh, uh, another arranging or uh, what I consider a recompositional project uh, But, you know, there are so many great and influential uh, 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 giants out there I was recently, last week, I was interviewing Randy Weston At a pre-concert talk And, you know, I mean, you know his influence is so tremendous As far as uh, bringing in a lot of African sensibilities into jazz uh, you know, we just lost, uh, George Shearing today. I mean, there's so many great people, and I, I just haven't figured out. Uh, I, I, owe Mingus. I'm sure I should do Mingus, uh, because he wrote so many great extended works. I should probably go back and revisit Mingus. Although I have, uh, recorded his self-portrait in three colors. But, uh, probably, probably Mingus. And, you know, coming from California, or at least, uh, <laughs> coming from Los Angeles, uh, that, that might be kind of bringing it home as well.
0: I was thinking uh, as I was uh, re-listening to this record today it was, and I, I just happened to, to come across this, uh, 42 years ago today, uh, Farrow Sanders recorded The Creator Has a Master Plan and right. uh, that was just a few years after uh, the music that you're uh, covering on this record and I, it it strikes me that uh, I don't know if this is definitely the case, but it, certainly people like Farrow and that kind of extended composition he was certainly assisted by the fact that Coltrane had come before and and done things like Love Supreme in India and Africa and this and and taken a look at larger extended pieces. Um, it, I think music like this really paved the way for so much that's come after it. Uh, sometimes in a way that we that is easy to overlook, given that it's you know thirty or forty or uh, years gone now.
1: Yeah, well, I I think anybody who's really interested in jazz and particularly uh, in Coltrane has has not or should not overlook Ferrell Sanders. As a matter of fact, um, is it and also kind of. Uh, Coincidentally, the, um, the booking agent for uh, Yoshi San Francisco is Jason O'Lane. <laughs> and um, when I first approached him with this project, we thought of getting a guest artist, and the first uh, name that came to both of our minds was Pharoah Sanders, but it, it was not possible. Then we looked at the possibility of, of inviting Ravi, but then his schedule, it was too late uh, to be able to book him. So, um, you know, who knows? We may try to expand this project by bringing in uh, somebody like Pharoah. Uh, and of course, that would give it a whole new dimension, you know, if you can imagine that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that would that would be very exciting. I'd also yeah. um, it, having having heard this uh, the Indian Africa album, uh, which you know, which tackles some fairly adventurous music. I, I was struck as I was listening to it that it would be really fun to hear maybe some of the more uh, accessible compositions of somebody like Sun Ra. Um, tackled by a band like this, you know, someone who was so interested in music from different cultures and <laughs> even different worlds that he yeah. uh, obviously well, invented. Yeah, definitely, uh, but I think different it would be, universes. Yeah, it would be fascinating to <laughs> yeah. hear. Yeah, well, uh, no,
1: Sunra. Um, you know, I love Sunra. I, mean, uh, I mean, I mean, I. at is is so. I mean, he's even more complex than Train. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. With Sunra, you can go from Fletcher Henderson to Saturn. Right and, and <laughs> exactly. yeah and, well that's a good idea Jason you might have given me my new
0: project hey <laughs> I'm excited yeah
1: Sunra, sure why not
0: is there anything I uh, I didn't ask you about or didn't give the opportunity to uh, to talk about regarding this record or the or the band that you'd like to mention
1: uh ooh gee uh, well first and foremost uh, you know this project has been uh, not only uh, an artistic uh, benchmark for me but you know very spiritual I mean to be able to work with folks who are so uh fluent in, in indian music has always been a dream of mine even though i've worked with zakir hussain uh th- you know having a band touring together you know living and breathing together for for you know for long periods has been for me a very enriching experience uh you know again and hooking up with one of my uh, uh i would say one of my heroes kenneth nash has been uh, a tremendously rewarding experience as well um I, I just have to say that you know if folks haven't really checked this out, I, I would hope they would give us a listen. It, you know, as you said, it, it is different. Um, uh, I don't know too many folks who are out there trying to really uh, uh, you know capitalize on on this uh, smaller global community. Of course, there are uh, other major projects. I know either orchestra; they've done some some amazing things. But um, you know, I guess. What we try to do here is, is just a reflection of what our lives are like out here in the Bay Area. I mean, you know, the communities, the interactive, interactivity among the art, artist communities. I think that that's what's reflected in our music. And, um, and I think that that's what gives it perhaps a, a, a singular uh, expression.
0: My guest is Dr. Anthony Brown. He's the leader of the Asian American Orchestra, and their new record is called India and Africa, a tribute to John Coltrane, and I uh, highly recommend it. It's really, uh, really a, a fascinating look at this music from a, a different uh, cultural lens. Uh, Anthony, it's been great to talk to you, great to listen to this music, and I thank you for uh, coming on the show.
1: Jason, thank you so very much.
0: Music from Anthony Brown's Asian American Orchestra and the new CD *India and Africa*, a tribute to John Coltrane. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is at theJazzSession.com for free. You can stream or download every interview. You can also check it out in iTunes or using an RSS reader, and uh, all those links are at theJazzSession.com. Please do become a member. This is a member-supported show, and I really need your help to keep it going, so uh, join now if you would. Thank you. Also, thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo and who tweets and always makes me laugh at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Get out there and support live jazz, okay? whenever and wherever you can, and then come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.